Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July 17th, 2014, and this is episode 1388 of the Survival Podcast. I'm without internet today. Uh, at least for the time being. Uh, it's uh, just one of those things. It rains, so I guess the people that run the Internet can't keep the Internet running in the rain. I, I don't know. I called uh, Comcast uh, my uh, our charter cable, my uh, wonderful Internet service and cable TV provider, and after excruciating agony of having to deal with an automated system that does everything it can to prevent you from talking to a human being, I was able to find out that it's not my service. It's a... Kind of an area thing. It would be nice if they had a feature. I'm just saying where you could, you know, please enter your account number, and it would say your account, your area is currently out, and we're working on the problem. An estimated time of recovery is instead of all the bullshit you have to go through to deal with computers. It's it's almost like companies don't actually want to talk to their customers anymore today. Enough venting though. I'm just letting you guys know I am without internet service, and um, I'm tackling a somewhat academic topic today. Uh, building Soil, Cover Crops, and More is the name of today's show. And it is because of a question I get often that I consider to be a question that says, I'm not doing a good job. Uh, the way It's not the question itself that's wrong. It's the application of the information inside the question that's just like, well, I don't know that I'm actually getting across what I'm trying to get across. And then it led to this whole other thing, and I thought, well, I'll review Dr. Ingram's presentation from Permaculture Voices and make this show really, really deep on knowledge and stuff, and instead I'm going to have to do it all from memory, which, with the illness I've had lately, hasn't been exactly uh, stellar, but I'll do my best for you. In the end, the conclusions are the same. And this kind of also stems from a question recently that I did on Monday, where I said what you really have to do when you're dealing with pests is focus on building healthy soil. That there's, cer there's certain insect pests out there, like stink bugs and like squash bugs, that there really isn't any predator for. You can talk all you want about predator habitat, right? But if nothing eats the thing that's the problem, then you can have all kinds of predators and they're not going to eat that. And I have yet to see anything that eats a squash bug or a stink bug or frankly, for that matter, a squash vine borer in that it actually gets inside the squash where the vine borer is and gets to the borer. So those are three, and there's more uh, insect pests than that, but those are three that are commonly deep, deep problems. Uh, you can only do so much with predators. And then we have other you know, predator, uh, pests out there. That it, just in sheer quantity and size, there's only going to be so many predators that take them out, things like grasshoppers. You could have birds, and I have birds everywhere eating them, but the grasshoppers are pretty much an epidemic plague this year. So in the end, you have to go out there and look and say, okay, well, not all of my plants are being hammered. Not everything's being hammered. Some of these plants are doing really good. Well, they don't like those. Well, no, it's the same species. As this. There's an apple tree here that has no insect damage whatsoever. There's an, an apple tree over here, and the grasshoppers are eating not just leaves, but they're actually chewing and girdling the bark at the end of the limbs. Why are they eating that tree and not that tree? And the answer is because that tree is more stressed than the other tree. And the number one way we can reduce the stress 
on those plants and make them healthier is improving soil health. And it's much bigger than that. I'm going to talk to you today about one of the main reasons that I believe that we have so many disease epidemics today. It's not just GMOs. It's not just chemicals, herbicides, and pesticides. It's what all of those things allow us to do to the soil that's the actual problem. I'm going to tell you about a cat today named Dr. William Albright, who was a contemporary of um, uh, a gentleman that you probably have also heard me mention, Dr. Weston A. Price, and what Dr. Albright said about soil health and societal health and how the two were intrinsically linked and how long ago that was. Before I get to that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, pulling this out of my head, I'm going to say that it should be probably Sawtooth Tactical. That's who it is now, anyway. Sawtooth Tactical has all the cool stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated from the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. Check them out today at Sawtac.com. They've got it all from the massive, awesome, cool, titanium, manly spork. Yes, I am serious. Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear, and everything else you can think of in the tactical world. Check them out today against Sawtac.com. Next up today, survival gear bags. Hey, if you want great bags and great gear to put in those bags, check out Kelly John Doe's site, survivalgearbags.com. Kelly is an actual product of the TSP community. And what I mean by that is many, many years ago, all the way back in 2008, there was this group of people in the TSP community that was very new, almost an infant at the time, and they came to me and said, Jack, thou shalt give us unto us a forum. I said, but we have a blog, and I don't want to steal other people's forum people or anything like that. And I'm new to the business and all. And they said, thou shalt give us onto us a forum now. And I said, okay. <laughs> so I gave them a forum, and I said, okay, you guys run it. I set up some moderators, and I got out of the way and let the moderators and admins run that forum. Onto that forum came many of our earliest community members in the first 100 positions. Somewhere in the 60s was a guy named Kelly John Doe. He was in the fulfillment industry, and he put together some group buys for people. That worked out well, and he thought, maybe I can make a business out of this, and survivalgearbags.com was born. And years later, when he actually had built up enough of a business to afford sponsorship, and I had a sponsorship space available, I offered it to him, and he took it. He's a great guy. I'll tell you how great I think he is. TSPgear.com, where you can get all the official TSP gear, it's his concern as well. I basically gave him the domain and the site and have him run that for us and uh, basically keep the lion's share of anything that comes in on it. So uh, Kelly's an awesome guy for me to put that opportunity in his hands. Uh, the stuff at TSP Gear, by the way, too, that helps support Kelly and his family a lot more than it does us here, and uh, it does help spread the message of the show. I want you to know on the TSP Gear stuff, I don't make money on that. I really don't. I haven't made a dollar on that in years, I don't think. Um, I pretty much let that all sit with Kelly. I do it because it's a service to the audience. And I know you guys want stuff that's branded with the TSP brand, and that's how we provide it to you. So check out not only the uh, Survival Gear Bags, but tspgear.com today, and help support Kelly and his family. It's a family-run business being run by himself, his kids, and his wife. Check it out today, survivalgearbags.com and tspgear.com. Uh, next up today, let's talk about the year that was the episode, 1388. But Jack, you can't get on the Internet. Well, I could get on with my phone. Um, but I started saving the emails from Alex so that I would have them. And uh, the one that I have for you guys today, it breaks it down between two things. You can find these at tspwiki.com, assuming your internet works today, unlike mine. Uh, the year 1388 in the history segment. There'll be a link in the show notes whenever the hell I'm able to publish it. And uh, we have the uh, we have Hosta La Vista Baby, A Testament of Love. 
and we have Black Death, the fourth wave. Um, I'm going to do Black Death, the fourth wave. But I think that today would be a very interesting day for you to get on to tspwiki.com, and there'll be a link in today's show notes again. Look up 1388 and read Hostel of Vista Baby, A Testament of Love. I think you'll really have an appreciation for the work that Alex does when you read this and how we can take the historical things that happen and bring them into modern times. But anyway, for, you know, let's go into sadder terms, the fourth wave of the Black Death. The third wave of the Black Death hit children. The fourth wave is hitting adults for the most part. The population of Europe has been reduced by 40 to 50% from a high reached in 1300. Some of that was due to famine and war, but the plague has taken the largest toll. A cult of death is growing. In the coming century, artwork will feature dancing skeletons, and the depiction of Jesus suffering with a crown of thorns will become common, which means, by the way, it was not until then. Think about that. Currently, holy figures are depicted with a golden aura. Some say that the child's rhyme, a ring around the rosy, is a child's way of coping with sudden death they see around them. They all fall down. Society in general is breaking down. Many are giving up. Others are spurred on to reform the system, which also means breaking down the current system. My take by Alex Shrug, not everything is going wrong, though, with severe reduction in population. A strain on natural resources has been reduced. While many farms have been abandoned, those are the low-production farms on poor soil. With the little ice age upon them, they have shorter growing seasons, so only the best farmland is, production, is in production. Um, I'll tell you that I think that it is quite possible that the Black Death saved humanity from itself at the time, from a maybe an even greater fate. Um, and one actually has to wonder, is then the, was then the, the Black Death nothing but a natural cycle? Generally speaking, there's a, a law, and I can't remember who said it. Um, I've heard it quoted many times by Mil Bill Mollison, the founder of Permaculture, and I can't look it up. I guess I could look it up, but I'm not going to, because it doesn't really matter who said it or who founded it. It is the law itself is the law, and that is the the chance of a species to go into extinction is at its greatest when its population is extremely low or extremely high. The second one being counterintuitive. You know, when there's like 15 condors left in the world or something, the fact that if anything goes wrong with those 15, that there would be no more condors is easy to comprehend. But the fact that when a, a species gets into a massive population bubble, that not only is it possible that that species would actually have a crash in population, but that crash could result in the extinction of that population, the complete and utter extinction, the extinguishing of its existence from the planet, a little bit harder to grasp. And when we look at a population of the world today, you know, headed for 8 billion, it gives you pause and it makes you wonder how precarious our situation is if we continue to simply live life the way that we have been with wanton abandon for the resources of the planet and what's available to us. Oh, that's leftist talk. That's I love crap like that. That's just the dumbest damn thing in the world. That's like sitting in a room. See, here's the problem. The room's so big we can't see the forest for the trees. And what I mean by that is let's say that we were all locked in a room together, me, you, and 20 other people, so there's 22 of us, and there was a big stack of food. I mean, a significant stack of food and water and medical supplies in a way to get all our waste out of the room. So we could get rid of the waste to a degree. We could get rid of so much waste today. And somebody came and said, Thou shall stayeth in thy room for 300 days. Thou shall not cometh out till thy 300 day, or thou shall be shot in the face with a bazooka. And you believed him. 
And for 300 days, we all knew we were going to have to deal with each other in this big room with this pile of food. The first thing we would do is go, well, how much food's available? How many people are there? And we would set a ration per person per day. And we'd say, this is a reasonable way to deal with the resources that we have available to us. And when somebody said, well, I have a bunch of money, I want more, everybody would say, you shut your hole, you're going to get nothing. Right? This would be a common sense way to deal with things. And we might look around and go, you know what, we have tons of commodity A. We have a thousand years worth of commodity A. Everybody can have all the commodity A that they want. And you might look at commodity B and go, we have 200 days of commodity B. So we're going to have to stretch it to make it to 300 days, especially if it's like essential and necessary. Okay, well, our world is a room. It's finite. There's not an, uh, the world is not an unlimited space. And the resources on the planet are limited. And there's only so much you can take before you start to strain and break the system. And we can see that in many places, including the soil, which we'll see today. But setting limits to how much people take is, is not left nor right. It's called logic. You can only take so much from a system before you break it. Again, we can see this when we move on to smaller properties. Let's say I gave you a five-acre property. And I said, you know, it's got pretty good grass on it. And it's got some water on it. And you should raise cows on it. You say, okay. And I say, now raise 50 cows on it. Well, if you have any kind of a brain, you'll tell me to shut up, that I'm a moron, that you can't possibly support 50 cows on five acres, that the, the math doesn't work, right? It makes perfect sense. Well, if we give you a million acres, you can still destroy it with an overpopulation on that million acres. It's just a much bigger number. Very easy to see when we push it down. Much more complicated to see as we move it up. Here's the good news. We don't really have to control the big numbers. If we actually managed our own lives, our own nations, our own cities, if we managed our own properties, that which is under our control, with an understanding of these finite limitations, then the system would actually self-balance. And if you don't balance it for long enough, the system might balance it for you. And you won't like the way the system does it. Ask the people from 1388. Anyway, with that, let's uh, get into the main topic of today's show. Other than real quick, I will tell you, if you help like to support the show, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Somebody today referred to it as a donation. It's not a donation. It is a product that you purchase. You purchase it because you want it. You may want it just because you think, well, the show's worth what I'm paying for it, so I'm going to buy it anyway and not use the benefits. I'd prefer that you use the benefits. If you're buying things in the preparedness industry, from guns to gardens and everything in between, there are enough discounts there that every year your membership should be profitable, not just pay for itself. So check it out today. Go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members. Uh, real quick side note, a little public service announcement. I do have a domain name that I, I played with for a while and never used because people got confused by it. It is tspc.co, not com.co, tspc.co. And I used it for short links and all that confused people, and browsers automatically put M's in it, so I got rid of it from that standpoint. And what I just did is I just redirected it to the survivalpodcast.com. So like when you're on your smartphone or something, and you don't want to go the survival podcast dot you can just go tspc.co, enter, and you will go right to the survivalpodcast.com. 
So you can go there and learn more about the Members Brigade. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, you do qualify for a discount. Just uh, send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put service discount in the subject line. Tell me one or two sentences who you are and what you're doing. I'll send you a discount code back before, not after you join. You need to do that. And uh, let's get on with the show today. So today I want to talk about soil health and building healthy soil. And I want to start out with what I'd already talked about a little bit today. And that is how as a teacher, you have to look at the questions that come from your, your students. And if you get a question once, and it's an inappropriate question, and let's say an inappropriately applied question. So the, the student's not wrong for asking the question, but the application of the information indicates that the question is asked from a, from a point of, of ignorance. Right? And that's not to put anybody down. That means that I haven't conveyed the information sufficiently for you to have the knowledge you need to ask the question in a more correct manner. So if uh, we were talking about martial arts and you had watched kung fu movies and I'd been teaching you for a couple of years and you turned around to me and said, well, when are we going to learn how to fly through the air, you know, like they do on TV, and, and stop in midair and move backwards? When are we going to learn a fight hovering 15 feet off the ground for like 37 seconds? Well, I'd say, oh, God, you thought that's what we were going to learn? And in all this time of teaching you, I haven't conveyed to you that that's not the way it works yet? And that would be an example of the absurd, right? But what I'm talking about, and the number one question I get that tells me that I'm not being a good enough teacher when it comes to soil development and soil health is what do I put down for a cover crop? And unlike the question, when do we learn how to fight hovering 15 feet in the air for 37 seconds and move backwards through the air and, and things like that, this question is actually an accurate and reasonable question, but the application of it is often so misconstrued as to what a cover crop is or for, and the, the concept of what the person's trying to accomplish versus what will be accomplished if they do what they're thinking, shows me I've broken down somewhere. Okay, So that's, that's a big impetus for today's uh, episode, is that little nuance and difference there between what I, we call cover cropping and overseeding in of itself, and the question that was, well, how, when you say build healthy soil, how do we do that? Because I thought I've been teaching that for a long time. And I think also the importance of that, because many people that come to the Survival Podcast are from farming backgrounds. They're doing conventional farming, and they don't see anything wrong with it. And they want to know, well, why can't I use fertilizer? Well, you can, but there's a consequence to it. Well, what are those? You know, we grow a lot of food, and a lot more food than people that don't use fertilizer. So how are we wrong? Well, we'll get to that today. Um, but it's, it's, it's difficult for people to understand these things if they don't actually understand the soil itself. What is it and how it works? So I'm going to get a little academic today, but I actually want to start out with, well, why I don't usually get very academic with soil. And that's because it can be very boring. Um, I'm going to give you a very overhead, mile-high view based on what I remain from Dr. Elaine Ingram uh, in her presentation, because there were things I knew, but it kind of opened my eyes. But if you listen to her, she'll go into the different types of these organisms down to a very specific level, first, second, third, and fourth trophic level, consumers and producers and all that. And it's important that somebody knows this stuff, but I don't think it's important that everybody knows this stuff. And I think based on what you're trying to accomplish when you're building soil, 
it may or may not be very important that you know it to this detail. And here's what I mean by that. If a person is going to be an engineer, I think the knowledge of algebra and trigonometry and calculus is extremely important to them. And not just the basic formulaic understanding of a few different formulas, but actually an in-depth understanding that, it, that, that, that goes into, you know, The, the, the fundamental analysis that results in the creation of formulas, right? How do we, how do we even get to this thing called the Pythagorean theorem? How could we come up with our own formulas, etc.? And, and that makes very, very much a lot of sense. But there are a lot of people that might want to do something like build a deck in their backyard. And basic mathematics and fundamentalist understandings of some basic engineering principles are important. And it's good that you have them. But there's a lot of rednecks out there that, that probably would have a hard time, you know, doing even what you would call basic algebra or basic mathematics. They can build you a damn fine deck and there's nothing wrong with it. And they can do a lot of it by sight. And they just know a few things about angles and structure and they could, they, they might do a deck for you that looks better, works better, functions better and lasts longer than someone with an engineering degree. But I don't want them designing a deck that we're going to drive 57 big trucks across across a 60-foot span, like a suspension bridge. I don't want them doing that. It's not that they will necessarily do it wrong, but my, my confidence that they'll do it in a way that will work and is safe and right is a lot lower than an engineer that's properly trained to use that information. How does that apply to soil health? Well, if you're going to be a farmer... And the crop you're going to put into a specific area is strawberries. Then, then the, the Dr. Ingram approach, and she is a fabulous woman, she's amazing, of actually fine-tuning the types of compost and the types of compost tea specifically to bring about the activities of specific organisms, okay? Specific organisms and specific types of protozoa based on the inputs that you're giving from a feed standpoint, to tune that soil to grow strawberries, I think, especially if you want to do it organically, extensively important. Extensively important. It is probably, if you if you put aside all of the advertisements in, in, in magazines like Eggers USA, this fungal that and this you know inoculation this and this kelp that, and, and if you actually wanted to actually take control, being able to take a microscope and actually examine the flora and fauna in your soil, identify the species of these little microbes, and then tailor either the crop to the soil or the modifications of the soil to the crop, That's like being an engineer. And, and that's, that's largely lacking in our agricultural society today. And it's why we rely on all these chemicals and poisons and fertilizers. I mean, here's another way that I can explain the application of knowledge and how much knowledge you need. And, and also the inappropriate amount of knowledge that people doing the job have, right? So when I get done today, for instance, I feel that you will know more about soil, soil health, building soil, and soil life than most farmers do. And I think it's sad, I think it's extremely sad, that someone like myself, who I consider absolutely in that world a layman, could teach 100,000 people more about basic soil life than the average farmer knows in an hour. It doesn't say anything great about me at all. It says something very, very wrong with the system. I could do the same thing in the medical industry. I could teach you in an hour more about physical health 
than most doctors know. Because the, and even if you have a, a farmer with an ag degree, the way we teach agriculture and the way we teach, teach medicine in this country today are very similar. They're almost in lockstep. And they're done from a mechanical view. And you can't apply a 100% mechanical view to a biological process and get an accurate picture. Because biology and mechanics don't work the same way. There's mechanics within biology. Okay, there are mechanics. There are certain mechanical functionalities. Your heart goes boom, 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 boom. And it, it runs as a mechanical pump. But it is not a mechanical process that runs it. It's an electrical process that runs it. And it's not electrical mechanical. It's bioelectrical. And we cannot sustain human life without a, a certain biological spark. And the human body will not function without that spark of life. So we can't manage health of soil or health of human beings as a mechanic. But yet that's what we teach. The soil's low in this, add that. A human being has a pain here, give them this. The cholesterol is too high, give them something that lowers their, their cholesterol. It's a mechanical one-to-one -one response ratio, and it throws everything out of whack because we ignored the biology. And so if I was teaching you more about health than a doctor would know, I might not go to the level that a natural health practitioner would need it to be. But I would still teach you the fundamentals so that you could take control of your own health. And that's what I want to do with soil today. I want to teach you the fundamentals so you can take control of your own soil health. And by the way, so you will take control of your own health by taking control of soil health. And that will make sense by the end of today. But I want to start out with something not very academic. What is the, di and I'm going to tell you right now, a lot of this stuff comes from Elaine Ingram. She's awesome. Look her up, learn from her. She's a genius. And you can go as deeply academic as you want with her. And she will take you there and beyond and still be smarter than you a hundred times over. She's that smart. But the simple difference between soil and dirt, I've already really given you the answer, but Think about it. I want a one-word answer between the difference between soil and dirt. I'll start out with explaining how, how, how soil becomes dirt. When you go out into your property and you're walking on soil and you're digging in soil and you're working with soil, some of it will stick to your body. It will be there compacted on your body for a while, and eventually it will end up in a pile of dust on your floor that you'll have to sweep up and get rid of. It's now dirt. There's something that's not really there anymore. It was there, and now it's gone. Even though it came from maybe a very fertile system, you're probably not going to use it as a fertilizer because you know it's not soil anymore, now it's dirt. What's the one thing that's not there anymore? The answer is life. The difference between soil and dirt is simply that soil is alive and dirt is dead. Dirt is dust. And it's amazing that some of the most beautifully structured soil, when tracked in on a boot and left in absence of the rest of its ecosystem for a very short period of time, becomes nothing more than inert dust. And it dies. It seems ridiculous that that's the case. Like, it should still be good. I mean, you can buy fresh compost in a bag. It's, right? But think about it this way. If you take a fish out of the ocean and lay it on the ground, it's not long before it starts to stink and decompose, and it's dead. 
It needs to be in its ecosystem to remain viable and functional. So the difference between soil and dirt, soil's alive and dirt's dead. Moving on, I want to talk about cover cropping and overseeding because this is something that tells me that I'm not really conveying the mechanical component very well. This is the usual thing that I get. Someone will come to my property and it, almost inevitably, I'd say nine out of ten people ask this question. I'm doing X and I need to put down a cover crop. What should I plant, like buckwheat and cowpea or what? And usually it involves the fact that the person is actually trying to rehabilitate create or enhance a pasture, right? Uh, a a fast-growing, aggressive, short-lived annual will grow in that environment if you plant it at the right time with the right moisture and the right conditions and the right amount of soil disturbance. But what is it going to do? If you think about a cowpea, you have a plant that has leaves about as big as an average man's palm of your hand. Look at the palm of your hand. A little bit minus your, your fingers. Probably about the size of your average man's palm from the wrist up to the first joint of the finger. So, so past the first joint, and maybe the second joint is what I'm talking about. So if you made like a bear palm, like you were going to bear palm somebody in the face. So you bend your fingers in the center so that your, the tips of your fingers touch the pads of your palm, about that big. That's how big the leaves are. And there's thousands of those in a, you know, a couple hundred square feet. What do, those, what do those leaves do when that plant's mature, and that's a vine, and it grows, and it intertwines around each other? What's the soil like underneath there while that plant's growing? It's actually a quite nice condition for the soil, because it's shaded. And it's protected from wind and sun and rain. It's a cover crop. That's what it does. It covers the ground. But how long will that plant live? About a season. And, and when I say about a season, I don't mean a year. I mean a season, about a summer. And what happens at the end of that season, the first time that, that aggressive summer annual cowpea encounters something called sub-32 degrees Celsius? It dies. And since it's choked out, shaded out, and completely covered everything underneath it, and if we've mixed it with something like buckwheat that, that grew to maturity in four weeks, and then the cowpea came in behind it, so the buckwheat first did that. About six weeks, the buckwheat was in full flower, and the cowpea was just beginning to overtake it. And about eight weeks, the buckwheat's like, I'm done. I, I'm finished. I'm a half-season plant. And then the cowpea takes over from there. It fixes lots of nitrogen, sure. And it just shades out everything. What is there after the cowpea dies? Nothing. Now you have bare soil. Well, that's not what you wanted. Now, it's true that you have a lot of organic matter, biomass accumulated, but all of a sudden this huge, lush field of cowpea shrinks as soon as it dies. Ever seen what a leaf, a big lush leaf the size of your hand looks like after one frost crinkles down into this little bitty thing? So there's far less mass there than there is space now. And then if there's nothing there to immediately take over into the next season, you now have a vacant, fallow bear patch that will be subjected to harsh erosion during the coldest time of the year, with heavy winds. And now you've taken 
reasonably decent conditions made them better for a short period of time only to make them worse. Because either you're going to be in a winter situation where you don't get a lot of snow and ice and it's going to be bare and beaten on all winter, or you're going to get a lot of snow and ice and there's going to be not much left underneath it, and when it melts off, it's going to erode everything. So that's, that is a cover crop where we should be doing overseeding. Cover crop is for a place that you crop. All right? Think about it, right? Crops go where crops go. So if we're going to be putting down buckwheat and cowpea as a cover crop, we should be getting ready to plant a fall crop of something. I don't know if it's another cover crop of daikon because we're just preparing the bed still and we're not ready to plant it yet. I don't know if it's winter wheat. I don't know what it is. But it sure as hell ain't nothing. And it sure as hell isn't a pasture. Now, does that mean you can't have pasture with some buckwheat and cowpea that's got native and regenerative in it? Absolutely. Of course you can. That's totally okay. But it better not be so thick that it overtakes the entire pasture. And it better be being grazed and fed upon so that it doesn't go rampant. And there better be a lot of perennials of a desirable quality in there with it. So when a person says to me, what do I put down for a cover crop? And they're talking about a place that they're tractoring chickens. What they're really saying is, what do I overseed with to enhance the quality of my pasture? And the answer is going to be deep-rooted, appropriately timed perennials. So chicory. Um, you're looking at clovers. right? You're looking at things like bird's foot trefoil. And, and there's, you know, tons of things, but you're looking at perennial grasses. And you're probably looking at some mixed reseeding annual grasses, brome grasses in, in, in environments that have not improved much yet are still very alkaline. But these are the types of things. So you're going to put things in that you would see in a pasture, not in a cropping system. Likewise, you're not going to put those into a crop bed. If you go into a bed that you plan on cropping with spring vegetables and you seed it in fall with cold weather tolerant clovers and cold weather tolerant perennials like chicories and plantains and things like that and it makes it through and in the spring you have this massive root mass of perennial root systems and you're trying now to prep that bed so that you can plant a true crop into it, you're going to be unhappy. You can still make it work. I mean, you want the easiest way to control a garden bed? Tarp it. And if you really want to enhance the life of it, plant a cover crop in fall. Plant something when you're, when you're coming to the end of your, 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 your vegetable season. And don't wait till your vegetables, like, I don't want to do it yet because my vegetables aren't done yet. Well, you know you have 30 days left of your vegetables. Right, So underseed your cover crop. So go in there with things like bell bean, vetch, winter oats like Caius oat, things like that. Put that underneath your crop. It'll start coming up. By the time it really comes up and starts to overtake your, your crop of vegetables, they're going to be dead anyway. It's going to be frost time. Let that crop get up. Go in there with a scythe, cut it down, flat to the ground. Put a tarp over the bed and leave it there till spring when you're ready to plant it. You won't have any weeds. Everything will die. It'll be full of earthworms. It'll be beautiful. 
You won't have to till. You won't have to do anything. Well, there'll be roots in the ground from last season. The worms will be eating them. They'll be breaking down. If you're putting a plant in the ground and there's a big root there, move over an inch and put it there or hack into it. You probably probably hear Buddy the Goose yelling at me through the window here. I mean, that's the easy way to control a bed. Tarp it. You know, unless you're doing an acre of that, you know, you what are you doing? Ten, ten beds? Ten, ten foot beds isn't even that much. Get tarps, tarp it. Even if you're not going to do it for a full winter, if you come to the end of a crop and you're ready to go into your next crop and you need to rest the ground, tarp it for three or four weeks. You'll put the K-Bosch on any weeds that you have. It's that simple. A tarp's less than a rototiller, and it works better. And you won't destroy the structure of the soil that we'll talk about in a minute. But as I go forward, I want to talk about why is this even important? Why is so? Let's say you're like, I don't give a damn, Jack. I don't want to grow my own food. This is all too much work. Or you're like, you know what, Jack? I do want to grow my own food. I don't want to do any of this gardening stuff that you're talking about. Uh, and I don't like to do a lot of gardening anymore either. I like perennials. They come back every year, and I don't have to do shit. I, I understand. So I, I don't. I'm not going to cover crop, and I'm not doing this overseeding stuff. And I don't have chickens, and I, I don't care about this stuff. Why should? Why is soil health so important to our society in the first place? Goes back to a gentleman that I mentioned, Dr. William Albright. Dr. Albright was a soil scientist from oh, about a hundred years ago, almost now, the very beginning of his work, anyway. And this is what Albright had to say about soil health in general: that the health of a society was directly related to the health of the soil that the society was fed by. That if you degenerated the soil of its life web, of its food web, of its if 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 its viability, if you made a degenerate soil, you would have degenerative diseases rampant in that society, almost immediately. That as the as the health of the soil declined, there'd be a corresponding dis- decline in the health of the society f- being fed by the soil. And the only thing that hid that is that even 50 to 100 years ago, the average diet of the average American in much of the United States was so limited in calories alone that many people showed signs of nutritional deficiencies that were not necessarily directly correlated to the food itself, though Albright's work was already showing that it was partly why it was happening. But it was just a quantity thing. In other words, people in this country routinely a hundred years ago, 120 years ago, went hungry. One of the big reasons we have a school lunch programs that we do today was how many young men showed up for duty. This is true stuff. You guys can look this up if you want to. Like I said, you guys probably have better internet than I do today. But the, 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 the men would show up for World War II for the draft. And many of them were labeled as not fit for duty. Because they were so so nutritionally deficient, and a lot of them were farm kids. Because two things had happened: one, the soil had already been deprived of a lot of its nutrient; but two, the farms had moved already from this diverse family farm to growing wheat and corn, or whatever. And you can only eat so much of that before you're into a nutritional deficiency of its of its own. But the farm was designed to make money, not food. Not food for the family that was there. And when they said, well, why are these kids that live in the farms nutritionally deficient? 
And it was at a point yet where people could not understand soil health at all. You know what they could understand very easily was this kid's not eating, so he's nutritionally deficient. He doesn't get enough food. So give him some more food. So all of these different types of programs came in supplemented by the government to make sure we could feed the war machine, by the way. I mean, don't lose sight of this. That a lot of these do-gooder programs that seem like they're designed to help the poor are, are fundamentally linked to the war machine. You know, you, you can't have people showing up for war and not being in good enough shape to kill somebody. So we got to feed them. And that's true, and you can look up the roots of that. I can only go so deep in a show like that today. But it also makes me think recently, not long ago, Joel Salatin put out an article, and he had been invited to this this place with federal officials and a bunch of people from the state of Virginia about the food system and things like that, and he, he thought it was going to be really, really important. He felt honored to be there. In fact, the only thing he had complained about up to this point in the article was that they fed him this garbage food like potato chips and styrofoam-laced crap and everything else, but, you know, he just expects that and just puts it aside and figures, I won't partake in this. And then the guy gets up and starts to talk from the Department of Agriculture, and he talks about how there's this massive decline in, in farmers in America and in, in, in rural economic development today and how this is a big problem. And Joel's thinking, okay, at least we're going to get into, like, how do we need, how do we rebuild the farm system and all. But in the end, what the government was concerned about, and again, this is, this is from Joel Saladin. If you don't trust me, trust him. The government was concerned because these rural communities provide a disproportionate number of the young men who serve in military service, specifically combat arms. And that if we lose that demographic, we lose a large portion of the men who are willing to serve our nation in the armed services. So the agricultural machine now feeds the war machine. It always has. An army marches on its stomach, but now it's also a direct feeding. They want your young farm boys to go out and drive tanks and get their legs blown off. That's a fundamental sad reality. And you talk about the health of society, there's something there as well. But in this whole war machine that need, they could see this decline. And, and medicine looked at this and went, man, our people are unhealthy. So as we started to feed everybody and people ate food, because eating poor quality food and very little of it, or poor quality food and enough of it to sustain yourself, you're going to look healthier even though you're still eating shitty food because you're getting enough food to provide your caloric needs. So a lot of the degenerational effects of diseases in our society that are linked to crops as they were coming to their full fruition, which was post-World War II, were masked simply because Americans were being fed at a higher caloric level And people didn't really see it, and they didn't, frankly, want to see it. But if you look at Albright's prophecy, destroy the soil health, destroy the health of society, and you look at a lot of the health issues in society today, from type 2 diabetes to heart disease, liver disease, cancer rates, autism rates, all of these, and how many of our chronic illnesses are based on some level of inflammation, arterial inflammation, intestinal inflammation, things like that. And you start to realize this all goes back to the flora that's in the soil and then the lack of flora that, that's in our guts. So if you don't have healthy soil, you don't have healthy humans. That's why this is important. And it also makes me think about the food web we don't really learn about in school. I don't want to go too academic here, 
But I remember very clearly in like high school biology and grade school biology learning about the basic food web. You know, the spider eats the grasshopper and the frog eats the spider and the snake eats the frog and, you know, and there's this whole food web. And I always put the human at the top. They ignore the fact that there's things that eat us. They want us to feel good about ourselves so we can go feed the war machine, right? But that's the truth. That's how they present that. And that food web's not inaccurate, except for maybe where we fit in it sometimes. We're an omnivore. Alan Savory would tell you that we're a scavenging omnivore, that we're not a predator. And if you think so, he'd say, well, go down, run down a deer and try to kill it with your teeth and see how it works out. That we actually have to use our brains to kill, and we're one of the few animals to do that. I'm not sure I agree. But he makes a valid point to a degree that we are not a predator in the realm of a lion or a leopard. But there is this food web, and we understand this cycle in the food web. And we, we, we fail to realize, I think, that way down at the first and second trophic levels, the life web levels, there's these smaller food webs that down at the bottom there's, you know, the plants as a primary producer are giving off what are called exudates, which I'll talk about more in a bit. And there's bacteria and fungi that feed on those. And then there's nematodes and protozoa that feed on the bacteria and fungi. And all of these have their own nutrient uptake and waste cycles. And, and, and we see, yes, the cow shits in the field and that's manure and that's organic matter and fertilizer and nitrogen. We get that. The chicken does the same thing. And we understand those cycles. And the tree drops the leaf and the leaf breaks down and that's organic matter. We fail to realize that that cycle is being, uh, completed in miniature at the microbe level inside the soil, that there's a billion little webs being formed like that in a teaspoon of soil. And that those processes are arguably as important or more important than the big ones that we see. So I just wanted to point that out without going too deep into it. And I'll talk a little bit about some of the things in there here in a second. But I want to go back to another one-word question for you. What is the only thing that builds structure in soil? What is the only one thing? There's a single word that can answer the question, what brings structure to soil? It's the same answer as the last one. What is the difference between soil and dirt? Life. Because people want to say, well, it's organic matter. Well, what's organic matter? Right? Well, it's, it's, it, it's, it's, it will build structure or earthworms. And, and what is an earthworm? It's a life form. Everything that makes dirt soil is also about what makes dirt have structure so that it can be soil versus flat, compacted, anaerobic death. It has to be oxygen and infused life to grow any plant that we care about whatsoever. There's also some other things that have to be there. But it's life. And if we don't have life in our soil, we cannot have structure. And any structure we create through mechanical means will fall apart. It won't stay there. You can take dead dirt, and if you plow it right, disc it right, you can make it look structured. And you can let it sit there, and it can rain one time, and the sun can bake it, and it will go back flat, compacted, hard, dust. And it will be death. 
It will be death to anything that, that dares try to grow in it, and anything that does grow in it will be of such poor quality that sooner or later it will mean death to what feeds upon it. So there's a ton of roles that these different things provide in soil, these different life things, and these different foods for life. I want to talk about just a few of them today to give you a, that, that basic understanding that will be very fundamentally basic. Kindergarten level is what it should be. But you'll know more about soil than most farmers do. Number one is bacteria. How do bacteria provide structure in soil? You think about this. Bacteria usually are considered bacterial soil, not as good and happy as fungal-dominated soil. It's true. And if you have soil that's absolutely dominated by anaerobic bacteria, it will produce things that will kill anything worth growing. Toxins. But good bacteria, aerobic bacteria, bacteria that actually sooner or later lead to a point where they actually decline in number and the fungi grow in number, in ratio. What is the main thing that those bacteria do to create structure in soils? And the answer is also one word, glue. They excrete what we can only call a glue, an adhesive that holds things together. Why do they do that? Are they like, you know what? This soil needs some structure. I'm the bacteria for the job. Here's some glue, man. No. Most life forms do whatever they do for the sole purpose of benefiting themselves and their species. And bacteria create glue for the exact same reason. I'm a bacteria. I'm not very mobile. Okay? I just kind of hang out here in this root ball doing my thing. And this plant excretes things, we'll talk about in a second, and I eat it. And there's other things in the, uh, the soil that I eat. <laughs> Rain comes. What happens to all my goodies and to me if there's no glue? Washes away. So the main reason that the bacteria excrete glue and hold the soil together is because they don't want to get washed away and they don't want their food, and it's more they don't want their food washed away. They hold their food in place Much like you might glue down, you know, when you go out to a picnic and it's windy, you might weight down your food with something so the wind doesn't blow it away. It's all that they're doing. They don't really give a shit. They don't have a cognitive ability. They can't think the way that you or I do or even a dog does. They're a bacteria. Pretty basic little, little critter, but they're necessary. And... When you look at aerobic bacteria in, an aero in a, a bacterial-dominated, somewhat healthy soil, pasture, you're going to be in an alkaline environment. You're going to be in that plus 7 pH. And we really want to get, for most optimal growing, below 7. Seven's okay, 6.5's a lot better. So alkaline is not in of itself bad. But a bacterial-dominated soil is going to be alkaline. So now we need to bring in another little guy in the soil for its life efficiency, and that will be fungi. And the fungi also bind and hold soil together. 
but they don't do it with glue. What do they do it with? Have you ever seen fungi growing in soil or on sawdust and holding it together? What is it about fungi? Is they grow and multiply that hold and bind things together? Mycelium. Strands. Little fibers that look like spider webs. So the fungi create structure and bind soil together with strands. There's an interesting thing about these two things together. They do not represent, they never result in, in of themselves, compacted soil. Because they hold together, they don't compact together. The fungi need the space to grow the strands. So the fungi can't even grow if we're heavily compacted. So they're not going to compact it because they would destroy their own system. And the bacteria produce glue in their little sphere, and they make crumbles. So a big part of what makes the soil have crumbles. Now there's other things that exasperate that, like worm juice and goo and the worms and dung beetles rolling stuff up. And there's all types of little critters doing all types of things from the microscopic to the visible that help with that structure. But one is kind of holding the crumbles together, and the other one's making the crumbles. And if we have fungi in our soil, we are going to move to the acidic because the fungi produces acid as it decomposes organic matter. We call it humic acid. So the, the process by which fungi lives and multiplies is an acidic process. So we need fungi in the soil with the bacteria to begin moving from the alkaline to the acidic. And without that, we can't grow any plant we care about. In fact, Dr. Ingram stated, I remember this very clearly, we can't grow any plant we care about without fungi. It's impossible. Even where we've totally screwed the soil over, there's some fungi there. If there wasn't, that plant would not grow. So let's talk about another word, exudates. Exudates is a word that gets thrown around in the, the world of permaculture and soil and agriculture. And I find that most people don't know what an exudate is. They, 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 it's like, this, oh, it's this magical thing. <laughs> an exudate... We'll start out with what it's made of. It's mostly sugar, it's a little bit of protein, and some carbohydrate. So if this is also right out of Elaine's material. If I sent you to the kitchen, said make me something, start out with sugar as your primary base. Okay? And inside the kitchen, find something that has protein in it that we can mix up. Now, steak's not going to mix up. So what do you have in your kitchen with protein It will mix up with the sugar. Eggs and milk. Right? Some carbohydrate. Flour. So if you mix something up and you cook something with sugar, milk, eggs, and flour, what are you cooking? Cakes, cookies, right? You're making cakes and cookies. And the way to think about what exudates are is they're cakes and cookies. An exudate is basically something that's excreted. 
when we say exudates in soil, we're, we're talking about every specific time, but exudates just in general science are anything that like oozes out of something else. So the exudates come from the roots of plants. So there's a plant, a tree, a chestnut tree. And it's, it's growing its happy little chestnut ass off one day, and it's like, I'm going to exude some exudation, some exudates from my roots. And it, it oozes some goo out of its, its roots. And these, the, this goo that it oozes out are basically sugar, protein, and carbohydrate. They're cookies and cakes. That's valuable fuel. Could be going to make a chestnut. Why is it excreting it into the soil? What possible reason could there be for this tree that's photosynthesizing as much energy as it can, sucking up as much nutrient as it can, doing all that it can so that it can grow big and huge and make many chestnuts, so that it can make many little chestnut trees and make more chestnut trees, What benefit is there to it taking its own energy source, its cookies and cakes, and giving them away to the soil? What is going to feed on them? Bacteria and fungi. And we're going to feed on the bacteria and fungi, nematodes, and protozoa. And what is all that feeding activity going to do? It's going to release waste. And what's going to be in that waste? Nutrients and minerals that the tree can't directly access on its own. They will be pooped out in plant-available form. So the tree goes squirt, slurp. It squirts out cookies and cakes, and it sucks up manganese. Thank you. And sometimes there's that indirect exchange from that whole little micro food web, and sometimes there's a direct exchange might be, oh, this fungi can bring me manganese. I'm going to give this fungi some cookies and cakes. Squirt. And the, and the fungi might directly reciprocate with manganese. Or the fungi might have to be consumed by nematode and protozoa and pooped out. But one way or another, the tree gets its manganese. So, in this mechanical world that we're learning about as farmers and agricultural people today, that just says if we're deficient in manganese, add manganese to the soil. I ask you, looking through a biological lens, who decides what type of exudate to release? The chestnut tree does. How does the tree decide what type of cookie or cake to bake today and release it? It's based on what it needs and what organism in the soil will give it what it needs. Now think about that. Think about the miracle of life that you're witnessing when you understand the scientific biology of what's going on there. I, a chestnut tree, have determined that today I am deficient in manganese. Therefore, I know that if I squirt out this particular excursion, I will attract organisms that some, I don't know how, But I know if I put this particular ratio out into healthy soil, that these little critters will come, and one way or another, I'll get my manganese. And then you're trying to manage that mechanically. It's preposterous to try to manage that mechanically. And if I give that tree manganese, in the absence of the organisms necessary for it to effectively utilize that manganese, How much of it can it really use? 
and I'll end up in a soil that's a surplus of manganese that throws off the entire rest of the balance. And I'll have a surplus in a lot of other things, too, by the time we're done. But I'll have this huge surplus of manganese thrown off the rest of the balance and a tree swimming in it that can't access it. And an extension agent scratching their head going, I don't know, we got the levels right. We got them twice as high as they should be. I don't know why this tree still is showing deficiency in manganese. Because you killed the soil, stupid. That's why. And right now, you now know more about soil life and biology than most farmers. Doesn't mean you can be a farmer. Doesn't mean you can produce more food than they do. It does mean that you have the fundamental base now to comprehend soil and soil health and understand basic rules and simple solutions to building healthy soil. And if you want to grow specific crops, asparagus here, strawberries there, peppers here, agriotic corn there, then you need to go deeper into this soil science. If you want to grow a polycultured system, that solves a lot of these problems for itself. Because when you have lots of different plants producing lots of different exudates, you get lots of biodiversity and you get healthy soil, then we can go to some very simple rules. And those very simple rules will equal healthy soil. And that healthy soil will equal healthy people that are feeding on the production of that soil. So number one, keep it covered. That's the number one thing you can do to protect soil health. If soil is covered it will be inherently healthier than if it was not. Everything else being equal. If you take compacted soil and cover it long enough and don't continue to compact it, sooner or later when you come back, it won't be compacted anymore. I've seen people take compacted red Georgia clay, lay four inches of wood chips down on top of it, do nothing else, leave it for a year, and come back and they and, and, and dig into it, and the clay started to go brown and black already. And you can dig down a foot, a half a foot in it. And if you do it right long enough, somebody looks at that soil and goes, that's loam. It's not loam. It's clay. Behaves like a loam. Because it has structure like loam. And it has structure because it has life. And if we create dark, cool, moist environment, things will live in it. Now we can speed it up. If it's that compacted, we may need to decompact it once or twice. But in the end, if we keep it covered, it works. And all you have to do to understand this is go anywhere that man hasn't screwed shit up, that isn't the middle of a desert, where we may very well have screwed it up, by the way, and look for bare soil. You will find bare soil is an anomaly in society. Not in society, in nature. Bare soil is always the indicator of a disturbance. Bare soil, if you're an outdoorsman, if you're a hunter, is an indicator of activity of something you may consider your prey. When I would go through the forest as a young teenager in Pennsylvania with my shotgun, and I would look out onto the forested floor in the fall, a lot of the leaves have fallen now. And you could see much better than when everything had the undergrowth in in the spring. And you would see patches of bare dirt. It was an indicator that that which you wish to consume might have been there recently. That bare earth could be from a squirrel digging for nuts. Could be a deer making a scrape. Could have been a flock of turkeys coming through eating acorns. Could have been a bunch of stuff uprooted by wild hogs. 
but it never meant anything other than some other life form disturbed that soil. And anywhere that some critter or some human hadn't come, because another thing it might tell you is somebody's hunting your area. You see a tree, great big flat oak tree, nice place to put a back up against. All the leaves are cleared out from around the bottom of the oak tree. What does that tell you? Somebody sat there. And somebody was a smart hunter who sat there that knew if they sat in the leaves and kept rustling around like an idiot, because I've seen that too, that no game would come because they would know you are there because you're broadcasting, Hi, I'm an idiot. Don't come here. I'll shoot you. So they would stay away. So the human would disturb the soil by removing all of the downfall branches and leaves and stuff into soft soil and would sit there quietly waiting for the opportunity to shoot the turkey or the deer or the hog. Make sense? And everywhere else, the ground was covered. Even in a big field. You go out in the middle of a field that hasn't been plowed and, and treated for agriculture or overgrazed or what have you, just a natural field. If you see bare dirt, the mind immediately grabs up, what happened here? That's a disturbance. Your soil is disturbed. It means it's, it's anything but normal, and it almost always ends up uncovered. Compacted soil will end up bare because you will drive the soil into an anaerobic state, a lack of oxygen. And once that happens, the microbes that live in that soil will ex exude toxins that will kill any plant worth growing, and the soil will go bare. And we will have to do something to decompact and cover that spot and put life back into it, or nothing will ever grow there. That's the spot in your yard where you can't get anything to grow. You've thrown dirt on top of it, put seed in it. And it comes up about an inch, and then the leaves turn yellow, and then it dies. You water it, you did everything you could, and it won't grow. It's too compacted. As soon as the roots get into the subsoil, not even the subsoil, what's left of the top that you're covering with that little bit of dirt, they go into an anaerobic state, they're poisoned by anaerobes, and they're killed. That's that spot that won't grow. The path that your dog made through the yard that gets muddy every time it rains, you can't get the grow back in. It's because that dog runs back and forth on that path and compacts that path. And nothing's going to grow there. And anaerobes will live in there. It's the only thing that will live in there. And they will poison anything worth growing there. So you either have to decompact it and keep the compaction from reoccurring. Or you have to take a different approach with cover. If you cover the path four or five inches deep in wood chips, eventually, even with the dog running on it, it'll decompact. It'll decompact. Because the, the wood will provide a spongy environment. And it'll bring life in. And it'll come back to life. And maybe you won't grow right where the dog runs, which is a good thing. That's why you have a pathway. But its peripheral area will become highly fertile. As a nutrient cycle leaches out from underneath the darkness of the mulch to where plants can emerge. So keep soil covered. Don't compact it. That's the other one. If you compact soil, I promise you it will not grow well for you. You will kill things. There's, there's no way around this. I have right now a spot where the ducks were getting to one of my garden ponds. And those web feet, wet web feet, came out and compacted and compacted and compacted 
compacted this rim of dirt around this garden pond where they don't belong. And I've got a guy coming. I'm not even going to fix it until uh, my handyman neighbor is going to come and build me a little duck fence around it. It's going to look cool. I could do it. I don't have time, and I still don't feel good. Right. So he's going to come build that fence. And then I'm going to go in there and put down a big, thick layer of compost, and I'm going to fix that. And when I do, I'll take, and this is not where my rock is. This is like a sandy soil that will decompact quite easily. I'll take like a piece of rebar, and I'll drive it into the ground there, and I'll rock it back and forth like, forth like you might with a broad fork. And I'll put a bunch of holes in the ground there, and I'll, I'll loosen that soil. And I'll put a big, thick layer of compost over it. And then I'll put a big, thick layer of mulch over that. And that soil will recover almost immediately. But until the compaction stops, it's not going to grow anything. So you've got life everywhere around it. This one spot is dead. And it's continuing to erode. Because it's compacted. So your two biggest things you can do to get living soil is don't compact and keep it covered. The next one is adding organic matter. Now there's a lot of ways to add organic matter. Cover crops and overseeding are one way to add organic matter. If I grow something in that soil, when the top dies or is cut, it goes to the ground, it's organic matter. And if the top is cut and the bottom lives on, it will self-prune and it will release a lot of its, if, if its material into the ground. And if it's cut and it dies, then that root system will die in the ground and become food for the soil. So there's, that's one way we can add organic matter. But our biggest ways for direct additions are compost, Compost teas and mulches. And what's nice is compost helps cover the soil. Compost tea helps feed the soil. And mulches cover the compost and the soil. So it also keeps it covered. So the organic matter itself can keep it covered and reduce compaction. But it also feeds the life. Next thing is keep something growing. Think about this. The way I explain this to you, this is what people don't understand. And it's, it's okay to not always do this. But in general, in a perennial system, something should be alive in there at all times. The tree, the plant, the bush, the shrub, the herb, the vine, the tuber, produces exudates. These exudates are cookies and cakes that feed the soil life at the most basic level. Bacterial and fungi. Your first level, your first trophic level of consumer. Okay, those feed the nematodes and protozoa, which produce waste that feed the plants back. And if we take away the root system that provides the exudates that feed the fungi and the bacterium, and they drop in numbers or disappear, the whole food web falls apart. Think about it this way, if you have a pond... And in that pond, you have algae and plant, you know, uh, phytoplankton, plant-based plankton. And on the plant-based plankton, you have zooplankton, animal plankton. Animal plankton are feeding on the plant plankton. And then feeding on both the zooplankton and, and, and phytoplankton are small, and we're skipping some levels, but just to make it simple, some minnows, little tiny minnows. And then you have slightly bigger fish that feed on those. And then feeding upon those slightly bigger fish are large predatory fish. What happens to the large predatory fish if we kill off the phytoplankton, the plant plankton? Well, if there's no phytoplankton, the zooplankton have nothing to eat, so they die. And if the zooplankton have nothing to eat and they die, then the tiniest fish and tiniest, uh, you know, tiniest crustaceans die. And then when they die, 
There's nothing to feed the minnows. So when the minnows die, the mid-level predator fish die because they have no food. So what happens to the top-level predator? It's dead. So if we take away the ability for something to put exudates into the soil, some sort of plant life, we start destroying the food web at its most basic level. Now, I also said this is okay. It doesn't always have to be this rule. And what I mean by that is, if you're cropping an annual system, and you cover it in a tarp for, for four months, that soil is going to be nice and healthy. And its life levels will come back up right away. But there's a reason. One, the soil is full of organic matter. There's plenty of food in there during this period of time. Okay. Number two, there's a lot of higher level decomposers active in there that are keeping things going at this time. It's also probably the point that it's going to be during a point of the season where there's very little growth of annuals. And it's a rest point. So even when we're looking at perennials, if they're deciduous, well, they're in a rest point and they're putting everything into to root growth versus extruding from the roots. And this is a big part of why it makes sense to plant your trees in fall. In the spring and summer, the primary thing your trees are doing is growing soil for themselves. And that's why they're excruting exudates during that period of time. See how simple that is? That really is dramatically simple when you think about it that way. And in the fall, they're spending most of their time actually growing those root systems. And the soil is colder, and there's less life going on, and things are more in a, a dormant to hibernative state. So the tree can focus on actually expanding its root system. So all of the sugars, all of its own candies and cakes it keeps for itself that are growing up in its, its canopy fall down the cambium into the roots like a potato, storing up all that energy. And that energy is used to grow those roots in the wintertime, subsurface, where when it's cold above ground, it's still dramatically warm comparatively a foot or two below the ground. Keep something growing. Keep something alive, maybe is a better way to put that. And remember, healthy soil equals healthy people. And if you have healthy, dynamic soil, you're only going to have so much problem with predators. I'm not saying you're going to have none. But you're only going to have so much. You're only going to have so much problem with weeds. Most weeds have... They have uh, germination triggers. Some weeds are compaction weeds. These are weeds that can survive the ickiest, nastiest anaerobic conditions and slowly decompact soil with deep, hard, hardy taproots like dandelions and docks. And they'll drive a root into that compacted pan of soil. Unless it's completely compacted, unless it's completely dead, if it's just somewhat compacted and still repairable by nature without man's help, that's what will come. Some weeds are fireweeds. When there's a soil disturbance that burns off everything else, if that seed isn't completely burned up, it knows it's in a system now with lots of potash. And it can grow in that fire situation, and it germinates. And most weeds are low-fertility germination. Um, that's what causes their germination, that's what stimulates their germination, is low fertility. So there's a lot of weeds that you could put the weed seed in fertile soil. They'll just sit there. I'm not needed. 
I know it sounds crazy. It sounds ridiculous that weeds will not grow in fertile soil. I'm not saying no, nothing that we think of as a weed will grow in fertile soil. I'm saying many weeds won't do it. They just won't. In fact, a lot of times as you improve soil fertility, even perennial weeds, you see them start to die. They get sick. I've got it right now. I've got crabgrass dying. We put down a layer of uh, horticultural molasses and straw and um, compost, big thick layer of wood mulch. And the first thing that popped up through it was the existing crabgrass. And my neighbor went, oh, look at that. You just did all that work and that grass is there now. I'm like, I don't care. It'll be fine. And he told me the other day, it's all dying. So well, it's crabgrass. And he snorted. Because huh. he doesn't understand what's going on. Doesn't get it. It's dying because it's too fertile. Now, is it super fertile, like super fertilistic, expeditious fertile? No. But it's too fertile for crabgrass. Now, people say, well, I see people fertilize their lawn with nitrogen all the time, and the crabgrass grows bigger. Oh, crabgrass loves nitrogen. That's one-dimensional fertility. That's one nutrient. True fertile soil is fertile in NPK and dozens of other nutrients. Did you know without arsenic you would die? Arsenic is a toxin. You can kill people with it. But if you had no arsenic at all, you only need a little tiny bit, but if you had no arsenic at all, you could die. Arsenic is necessary for soil life. It doesn't need a lot, but it needs some. So whenever we think eradication, we're always on the pathway to death. The only thing that can result as we begin to eradicate anything is eventually the eradication of all things. And then we're at a point where we have to hand reintroduce that which we think we want. We don't even know what we need. The reality is even brilliant people like Elaine Ingram will honestly tell you, in the end, I can't tell you everything a plant needs. I don't know. There's no way I can know. I think I know but I know that I don't know. That's what the honest researcher says. I know a lot. We know so much more than we did 50 years ago about this stuff. But there's something that's true in science. The more you know, the more you know you don't know. That's something our arrogant mechanistic view has lost. We see everything mechanical anymore. Turn a switch, flip a lever, get a result. Ones and zeros, binary code, just the way it is. Where life's like this giant balloon. And there's no way that anywhere along this balloon can we squeeze, twist, poke, push, punch, prod, where it doesn't respond somewhere else. And if we suck all the air out of the balloon, and then take a skeleton of a balloon, and put it inside so it looks like a balloon, But there's no air in the balloon. It will not be a balloon. It will not behave like a balloon. It won't fall like a balloon. It won't float like a balloon. You won't be able to bounce it in the air like a balloon. It'll be balloon-like, but it won't be a balloon. And that's what we have with soil on our farms today. It's soil-like media. Most farms haven't totally killed the soil. If they did, nothing would grow. Again, quoting Dr. Elaine Ingram, we can't grow any plant we care about without fungi. 
So if we had totally annihilated the fungi in the Iowa cornfield, there wasn't any there at all, you can put down all of the chemical you want, and it's not going to produce corn. There's some soil-like feature left there, but it's not soil. It won't nourish a plant so that the pest doesn't want to eat it. The pest is not designed to wipe out the species it depends on. The pest is designed to feed on the weakest, most stressed plants. It's not its fault that we've weakened and stressed all of them. It's just trying to do its job. The lion, her, the lion pack, right, will never completely eliminate the herd of gazelles. Unless we reduce the population of gazelles and hobble them all. And then the lions will go on a killing spree. Because they're lions. It's what they're supposed to do. The corn earworms and the corn root knot worms are going on a killing spree because we've hobbled all the corn and we've hobbled all the soil that's growing in it. And we've hobbled our humanity. We've hobbled our health as a society. This is way, see, this is what I say. GMO is bad, yes, but it is such a small symptom on the blight of the disease that we're dealing with. The reason we have a market for GMO seed is farmers need to make a profit. And with a subsidy plus GMO and fertilizer, they can make one. And yellow stuff comes out the end of the chute, and we all eat, and people don't die. But why is that all necessary to make yellow stuff come out the end of a chute? Because the soil that it's growing in is dead and dying and decaying and degenerating. And so we are degenerating as people. People point to vaccines and go, because of vaccines, look at the, look at the autism rates and this and that and this, these autoimmune diseases. It's all, all about the, the these, these vaccines. I'm not saying vaccines are overall healthy. I'm not saying that vaccines aren't overused today. I think the vaccination schedules of the 1980s made a hell of a lot more sense than the vaccination schedules of today. I think just like everything else in our society, we've gone to the extreme dangerous edge with vaccines, just like everything else. But you can't blame vaccines for all of the degenerative diseases in society, including in our children. You can blame the condition of our soil. Because it actually makes sense. And all one need to do is eat one piece of living, nutrient-dense produce to know the truth. The reason the best chefs will pay the best money for the highest quality food is about the flavor. And here's the reality. I can sit you down... And I can cook you organic carrots and conventionally grown carrots. There's no doubt the organic carrot has less toxin in it. There's also little doubt that the organic carrot has almost no benefit from a nutrient density standpoint. It's not any healthier than the conventionally grown product. It's simply less toxic. Now, my friend Neil, former business partner, came to Arkansas when I was living there. We had some very established beds by this point. And it was, you know, cool time of the year. And we were pulling carrots about that point. 
big, beautiful Scarlet Nantes carrots. And he says, well, what are you going to make for dinner tonight? I'm going to make steak on the grill, and I'm going to make carrots. He says, how are you going to do the carrots? I said, sage and butter, nothing else. That's it. He says, well, that sounds like it'll be good. So I make these carrots for him. And uh, sage, butter, and garlic. Oh, he's garlic. Wrapped in foil, cooked on the grill. He goes on. I made him this gorgeous, grass-fed, marbled ribeye steak. Just absolutely gorgeous steak. Beautiful pink, red, thick, juicy. Wipe your mouth and lick it because it was so good. And he's on and on about what? Carrots. Mate, that's just amazing. I'm going to make those. And he's done it over and over again, and he can't make them that way, and he doesn't understand why. What's your secret? There's no secret. They're never the same, and he's mad about it. Angry, upset, because they're never the same. You must do something. I don't, and the guy's a gourmet cook. I wouldn't say he's a chef. He's a gourmet cook. He's you know worked with and studied with some really high-end chefs. Really an amazing cook. I, I cannot make them that way. And I told him the last time we talked about it, Neil, I cannot make them that way right now. He said, why not? I said, because I don't have any of them. I'm like, it's not the technique of the cook in this instance. It's the carrot. That carrot grew in, in a mixture that was about 80% compost. And it grew deep into a hugel bed of forest inoculated hugels. Right. The, the, the wood that we put in those hoogles came straight out of the forest. It was halfway decomposed forest timbers. It was just laced with all of this fungal activity. And then we put living compost on top of it. And then we mulched it. And then we cover cropped it. And then we turned the cover crop in. And we got life going. And then we cropped it with a summer crop. And then we went into a fall winter crop. And that carrot went down in there and it sucked all of that up. And that 8-inch Scarlet Nantes carrot probably had a 3-foot deep hair root going 3 feet down all the way to the hard pan, bedrock, through those hoogles. I can't replicate that carrot right now, here. I don't have the soil for it. I don't have the soil structure for it yet. I have to decide, do I want to do that? Do I want an annual system? And if I do, I have to put in a bed system specifically to grow annuals in. This soil with the rock a foot underneath it won't do that. Not with annuals and not with a deep tap-rooted or deep hair-rooted plant like a carrot. A carrot can't form here. It needs a deep enough bed of prepared soil just so it can form a normal carrot, but it's got to have a subsurface where it can get those hair roots in and begin to find those little cracks in the limestone to find its own way here, and it will be different. It will have a different terroir, a different sense of place. I can't give Neil the secret to how I cooked that carrot because how I cooked it doesn't mean anything. How I grew it meant everything. When we had our gardens in Arlington, they were five years old by this point. I knew so little of what I knew now, but I knew keep the soil covered. Keep something growing in it. Don't compact it and provide organic matter. And my sister-in-law, who had always kind of been, eh, she's the teacher and her husband's a cop. And, you know, they're very much 
a little prudish church on Sunday, every Sunday, and kind of tiss, tiss, tiss that Uncle Jack doesn't go, and, you know, that everything's, you know, consumer level credit card crap, and they just, they, they have that modern American lifestyle, and this gardening thing just doesn't seem to make sense. And she came over one day, and I grabbed a sweet pepper, one of those small, little, compact sweet peppers off of the plant and I said just eat it it's compl- and I, I did I used a word that I knew wasn't accurate because I, I wanted a word that she would understand it's completely organic and safe right so you say organic they're thinking like store organic so you can just eat it and she tentatively picked it up and bit into it it was like oh I'm eating something off a plant I don't she bit into it she went oh my god why does it taste like that Four, five months later, she'd come back and go, that pepper, I still can't believe how that pepper tasted. I want to put a garden in so I can have a pepper like that. That's nutrient density. It's not just freshness. If it was just freshness, then some of the stuff that you buy in the store should taste like that. Because they've actually gotten really good at getting a plant off of a bush and into your hand very quickly, 48 hours. Now, it's never going to be plant, hand, mouth the way it can be when you grow yourself. But I'm telling you, when I pick a pepper from the backyard, set it in the refrigerator for a week, it's not as good, but it's still so much better. Because the nutrient density is there. And that nutrient density cannot be replicated with inert soils. This is why people grow beautiful hydroponic food. It looks beautiful, but it just doesn't have the taste and the structure that you're looking for. It's too wet. It's not flavorful enough. It's not bad. It's not poor quality, but it will never be what food grown in living soil can be. Because lettuce and peppers and tomatoes are not meant to grow in a pond. They're meant to grow in the earth, in living soil. And the way we make and improve the health of that soil is we keep it covered, we don't compact it, we add organic matter in the form of mulches, compost, compost tea, and by growing biomass in the soil, by keeping things growing. And remembering that healthy soil equals healthy people. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. Like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay I guess we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
Revolution is you.